Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to James Kalb, lawyer and author, giving a talk entitled, The Challenge Goes Deep. Mr. Kalb's talk was part of Challenging the Secular Culture Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. To start with, an effective challenge requires us to disestablish secularism, which now amounts to a religion. That means radically changing the academy, the media, and the legal system, which inculcate that religion and define the social world we live in. It also requires us to reverse the movement to normalize homosexuality and same-sex marriage. That movement has been enormously successful and it's turned into a holy war against what now counts as a heresy, the view that the body and sex have meaning independent of individual will and desire. Now, once we've driven back the progressive jihad on that score and reestablished an understanding of the distinctiveness and complementarity of the sexes, we'll be in a position to restore the family as a reliable center of life, love, education, and faith. Now, of course, we're concerned with more than institutional matters. The project isn't going to go anywhere without regard to the aesthetic and imaginative side of life. So we also have to recover humane learning and renew art and architecture. So we'll discuss ways of doing that as well. Pulling the pieces together, we're talking about overcoming those who determine the legal order and control public discussion reversing incredibly perverse religious and moral commitments, restoring the normal way people apprehend the good, beautiful, and true, and getting people to recognize obvious primordial universals, like the constitution of humanity as male and female, that, that have all become invisible and incomprehensible from the standpoint of what now counts as mainstream public discussion. So if you look at the magnitude of what we propose and the, and the influence of those in favor and those against the project, the whole thing looks insane. We are saying that we are right and everyone who counts for anything is wrong about human fundamentals. In fact, though, the situation is not nearly so dire. From the standpoint of reality and the all but universal judgment of humanity, we're not crazy. What we're against is crazy. And not only is it crazy, but everybody knows it at some level. So we're fighting something that in the long run can't sustain itself because it makes no ultimate sense. In spite of appearances, we can be confident in ultimate victory. So what I'd like to do today is present some thoughts on this situation, why it exists and why efforts to deal with it have failed and what needs to be done. I'll paint with broad strokes and present what I hope is a somewhat coherent view of the situation. The view is likely to seem gloomy in spite of ultimate hope. When times are bad, though, it's important not to underestimate problems. And whatever other errors I've made, I don't think I've made that one. I'll start my account with a recent event. According to a news report, a New York City Health Department form for new parents requesting birth certificates asked the woman giving birth if she's male or female. 
you know, this is clearly insane. But why does that sort of thing keep happening and not only happen but repeat itself and consistently grow more bizarre? The natural intuited reaction is that such events can't really be serious, that they're weird anomalies and they'll just go away if we roll our eyes and ignore them and go about our business. But that doesn't happen. The situation only gets worse, the oddities become more extreme, and uh, no one prominent seems able to argue against it in a coherent way. So what does this all mean? What it seems to mean is that there's a problem in the way influential people think about things that's basic enough to destroy their grip on human reality, that's to say their common sense. The problem is altogether fundamental, so much so that it's hard to stand back and see it for what it is. So it seems to me that at bottom what we're dealing with is what might be called the technocratic project, which is the modern attempt to turn the social world into a sort of universal machine for the maximum satisfaction of preferences. As such, the goal is something extraordinary. It's to create a social world that recognizes no transcendent authority above it, uh, no history behind it, except the history of its own coming into being, and no nature of things beneath it that can't be transformed technologically into whatever we want. That project has been growing up for a long time, and it has enormous intellectual and institutional support. It comes out of an understanding of knowledge in the world with its roots in the early modern period. That understanding emphasizes measurement, mathematics, and mechanism, and accepts as real only individual subjectivity, the fact that we feel things, and objects of the kind studied by modern physics. And that understanding doesn't float in the air. It's associated with modern science and technology and allied to modern forms of social organization, the modern state, with its extensive bureaucracy and unlimited claims, and modern capitalism with its energy, innovation, and global reach, and its flexible organization that combines infinite complexity with simplicity and clarity of basic principle. Those alliances give the project of technological rationalization an energy and power that express themselves in continuing radical reorganization of social life. That process has involved replacement by technological methods of religion, tradition, and natural moral law based on natural ends and ways of functioning. The latter are treated as irrelevant human imposition, impositions on the world that in fact is composed of atoms, the void, and human sensation. So instead of piety and inherited ways, which were once the guide, People think they should rely on contract, marketing, money, and the decisions of supposedly neutral experts based on social and organizational science. That situation, I think, combines a fundamental explanation for such developments as the redefinition of marriage, the insistence on treating sexual distinctions as irrelevancies, the desire to obliterate national and cultural boundaries, abolition of the good, beautiful, and true as objective realities, and a view of religion as private mythology, psychological therapy, or secular social concerns by another name. 
all those things are unscientific and irrational, so they have to go. As the process has extended itself, there's been a growing tendency to view opposition to further extension as evil. Since older understandings are now considered simply irrational, they have come to seem arbitrary, oppressive, and presumptively violent. That's why the Supreme Court says that the only real reason for wanting to keep the natural and traditional definition of marriage is the desire to injure people who prefer other kinds of connections. Such an interpretation makes sense if you think it goes without saying that there are no natural patterns of human functioning that we should respect in the social organization, in the social order, including an institution as basic as marriage, is just a construction for the purpose of helping people achieve whatever goals they happen to have. Now from the beginning, a number of thinkers have recognized that there's something wrong with the, this project and the understandings that lie behind it. Pascal, with his rejection of Cartesian certainty as a standard for knowledge, was an early example. Those thinkers have pointed out that knowledge is more than measurement and mathematics, reason is more than adapting means to ends, and the world can't be understood as a system composed solely of atoms, the void, and human sensation. The attempt to understand it in that way wipes out the possibility of meaning, and, the, and with it, rationality. It also obliterates functional patterns and implicit goods, which are non-mechanistic features of the world that are indispensable for understanding much of it. For example, living organisms, including us. Now these abstract theoretical problems, conceptual problems, become intensely practical when the outlook is applied to human affairs. Human society can't flourish while rejecting natural forms and functions like sexual complementarity, and particular ties, like common history, loyalties, and culture. All those things are necessary as a basis for durable functional relationships, which can't be understood mechanistically, but are basic to how we live. Those relationships included the nuclear, include the nuclear extended family, but also larger configurations like religious groups, local communities, and the complex arrangements that make up the culture of particular peoples. Also, the technological outlook, which is what we're talking about, has no interest in ultimate goods, but only in realizing whatever goals people actually choose. In the liberal form, the one that has prevailed, the goals are those of equal individuals. So individual satisfaction becomes the ultimate goal of all action, of all rational action. That's a problem because you can't have a social order without willing acceptance of sacrifice and recognition of values that transcend what we want. And in any event, people just aren't satisfied by satisfaction of desire simply as such. We live by our understandings as well as by our feelings. So we want to know that our desires are justified and our satisfactions worth having. We want to live in accordance with some sort of ideal and to see ourselves as participants in the order of things, however odd that understanding of that order might be. 
Now, the liberal form of technological society, which is what we have, has dealt with that essentially religious need by turning rejection of higher goods into a higher good itself on its own and calling it freedom or autonomy or choice or respect for the supreme dignity of every human being. What it's done at bottom is to treat each of us as a little deity whose wishes are divine commands that define moral reality and takes vindication of our equal divinity as the goal of political and moral life. That's the religious basis of the moral passion behind such causes as inclusiveness and multiculturalism. Each of us is a little god, so each of us has to equally see his divinity respected. Now that solution has some odd features. It works pretty well for those who guide the system through the control of various bureaucracies and business, government, and non-for-profits. It seems to justify their position and activities. It lets them claim that their power isn't power. It's just loyal and disinterested defense of the power and dignity of every human being. You know, they're, they're, when they tell us to do things, they're not telling us to do things. They're protecting us. It also works reasonably well for their hangers-on, volunteer warriors for social justice, who participate in the triumph of their ideal and make up for the boredom of a politically correct consumer society by moral preening and the joy of smoking out and hunting down dissidents. But what the solution does not do is give people in general a practical ideal to live by. Whatever you want to do is okay as long as it fits in with the equally okay things other people want to do, just isn't an inspirational guide to life. Also, the open-ended insistence on equality and emphasis on satisfactions rather than conduct leads to a custodial state that attempts to eliminate the danger that ordinary people will hurt themselves or oppress others by depriving them of agency and training them out of the ordinary functional ways of thinking that are now denounced as prejudices. The result is that their lives go downhill in the way described by Theodore Dalrymple in his various essays and books, and by Charles Murray in his book Coming Apart, which is a study of uh, basically the social decline of, of the bottom half of the American uh, pecking order and dramatized by the recent finding that over the past couple of decades, the average life expectancy of white American women without high school diplomas has dropped five years. So things are getting worse for people who aren't careerists. Nor does the solution work for serious Christians. Its illogic rankles, and it seems a poor substitute for older, more coherent commitments, such as local, family, cultural, and religious establishment attachments, not to mention the transcendent goals of their own faith. So they view basic aspects of what secular liberals uh, call social progress as the destruction of everything they love. That's why we're here today. So what to do? To fight the secular culture, we need to fight the overly technologized form of society whose culture it is and whose ways and interests it expresses. What we're up against is therefore something powerful and deeply rooted, and those carrying on the struggle have been handicapped because they not have not kept in mind or even recognized how serious the situation is. Some, for example, 
have limited their opposition to replacing government and transnational actors by corporate and national ones. But that approach only leads to a slightly different version of liberal technocracy. The Catholic Church, of course, has been more thoughtful, and recent popes have kept alive principles like subsidiarity and natural law that resists a technological reduction of society in a fundamental way. Nonetheless, actual efforts intended to further the goals of Catholic social teaching have usually emphasized finding common ground with dominant forces for the sake of participating in something effective. They've sacrificed principle to uh, success, or what seemed like success. The result has been support for extension of the bureaucratic welfare state and thus of, thus of a technological form of society. There continue to be distributists in the church who want to integrate economic life with ordinary human concerns by devolution of economic power, for example, to families. But that's mostly been a niche uh, literary movement and hasn't had much effect. So the deficiency, the lack of uh, fundamental analysis made the battle against technocracy mostly a matter of feeling rather than principle. People descend from the tendency of things are mostly those with strong concrete ties to family, faith, heritage, and community. So their opposition usually emphasizes symbols, practices, institutions, and authorities rather than theory. So the battle's been a battle of ideological progressives who know what they want against instinctive traditional conservatives, those who favor further development of dominant trends and concepts against those who like, dislike the trends but don't have an adequate counter theory. That hasn't been the whole theory, of course, the whole story, of course, but other oppositional tendencies have usually been even less coherent. There have been anarchists who reject technological society because they reject coercive order in general. And there's also been various hippies, greens, and feminists who also tend in that direction emotionally. The usual effect of their efforts, though, has been to strengthen the managerial liberal state, which claims to be a neutral protector and facilitator of all tolerant ways of life over all other social authorities, like the family, and so to strengthen what they thought they were fighting. So the dominant opposition, then, to tendencies has been conservative of mainly instinctive, and it's taken a number of forms. At its least theoretical, it's just proposed moderation or rather foot dragging. Some new demand seems to go too far, and we're not ready for it. Yet that approach obviously isn't going to be very effective long term. Other conservatives have put forward particular demands that tended to limit the overall organization of society on technologically rational grounds. Um, for example, libertarians have tried to lim limit the state and opposed its alliance with large institutions, which is why, at least in America, they're counted as conservative. Populists have tried to maintain what seemed to them common sense understandings and, and, limit, the, and uh, limit the power of large institutions in general. And social conservatives have tried to maintain the strength and influence of traditional organic institutions like the family. All those efforts have failed, in part because trends have been so adverse, but mostly, I think, because they've underestimated how deep the problems go. 
You know, populism flares up, people protest, but it's easily co-opted and it disintegrates for lack of stable definition and leadership. You know, they don't have a theory, they uh, don't have an elite by definition. So uh, it, it's hard for them to know what they're doing and to stick with it. Social conservatives have succeeded in uh, offering determined and occasionally effective resistance on particular issues like abortion. But overall, they've lost ground. I, I think, to some extent, for ability to link those issues to a comprehensive structure of concerns. Now, libertarian free marketeers seem an exception to the general rule of failure, since uh, the limits of bureaucracy and the importance of private decision-making have become quite generally accepted among influential people. The overall practical effect of their victories, though, has been extensive uh, has been extension and rationalization of markets, which amount, which, for example, globalization, big box stores, fast food franchises in place of local and more personal arrangements. And also a sort of soft socialism in which government retains overall administrative control, but relies on exchange profit and crony capitalism as, as an organizing mechanism. So what you get is illustrated by bailouts of financial institutions and the ability of uh, real estate developers to uh, use public authority if they're politically connected to take other people's property for their own purposes is a regime in which private property may profit its owner, but it doesn't limit state power, support family life, or protect the independence of homeowners, small businessmen, or local communities. Religious and intellectual conservatives have paid more attention to basic principle. The first have emphasized the continuing importance of sacred tradition, the latter of, of general intellectual and spiritual concerns that can't be used, reduced to utility. Ideas have consequences. So they've emphasized the aspects of human life the technological society leaves out and the errors of thought that have led to that situation. They've lost two. Religious conservatives are loyal to heritage. When their political and social heritage is fundamentally liberal, that can be a problem. God, America, freedom, and equality all get mixed up together, and the easy way to deal with difficulties is to gloss them over and focus on symbols and rhetoric. So what you get is a religion of patriotism, but the alternative that's offered is to separate religion from other aspects of the society, the other aspects of social tradition. And that tends to separate it from inherited interpretation and natural law as well. So you end up getting a form of religion that assimilates to liberalism. So the usual alternative to right-wing political liberalism, religion is left-wing political religion. <coughs> Literary and philosophical conservatives are politically and intellectually scattered and tied by the professional position to an academic world that's become, in America, a half-trillion-dollar industry, providing training expertise and propaganda for industry and government. As such, it's not a place where conservative thought can become something more than individual idiosyncrasy. In addition, both religious and philosophical conservatives have often focused too much on the ideal side of life, on faith, values, the inner check, the moral imagination, or whatever, without enough attention to more practical things, to political and economic organization, and the need for authority 
that is more concrete than the, the uh, general authority of tradition and reason. So if the conservatives have all lost, and not only have they lost the battle, but to all appearances they've lost the war. After the Supreme Court finding that opponents of gay marriage are enemies of the human race, and Obamacare with its all but universal mandate to provide contraceptives and abortion-inducing drugs, and given the principle of inclusiveness, combined with that of everlasting mass immigration from everywhere, both of which seem to be unquestionable in mainstream discussion, there's very little room left in America for any recognition of the roots of public order in nature, transcendent principle, or particular history and culture. The latter are viewed as oppressive principles that have to be overcome for the sake of equality, rationality, and autonomy. So the only principles of order that re remain legitimate are bureaucracy, con contract, and technology. We get a technologically organized society. Appearances, of course, are deceiving. Since the triumph of overly technological liberalism means it's destructive, it's destruction. It's based on a defective understanding of knowledge in the world that destroys good judgment in ever more radical ways. How can a society be governed effectively if those who govern it re refuse to recognize basic human goods, relationships, and patterns of behavior? How, for example, can it survive if in principle it abolishes marriage? And how can it deal with problems realistically if it forbids discussion of human limitations? Also, uh, the current order depends on popular acquiescence. It secures it by promises of eternally more security, comfort, and prosperity. It'll, it won't be able to keep those promises. Borrowing money to give people what they want is not a plan that will work forever. Most basically, perhaps, liberal technocratic society needs its ideals because it depends on a reasonably loyal and dedicated ruling elite. And the ideal of equal freedom that inspires them and gives them legitimacy is going to grow steadily less believable as the years go by and the system becomes visibly less free and more divided by class. Nor is a coherent and public-spirited elite likely to survive in a diverse multicultural society in which there is ever less social trust and more and more of the elite's members view themselves as entitled recipients of compensation for claimed oppressions rather than disinterested providers of social protections and benefits for others. So we're going to have a crisis of the ruling elite. They're just not gonna be, uh, you have the dedication and disinterest to keep the thing functioning. To make matters worse, it's very difficult for present-day society to self-correct or moderate its tendencies. It's been remarkably successful in most of the ways it cares about, so it's not likely to see a need to do so. Its intellectual life is institutional and departmental, so it's very resistant to change. And it's enough of a meritocracy and offers big enough rewards to recruit most of the talent and keep it busy on its side. Also, it's based on an understanding of knowledge that identifies it with neutral expertise, of morality, that uh, bases it on the choices of equal individuals, and of human life that views society as a big machine for promoting maximum equal satisfaction. Those understandings, which are amazingly narrow and, and for that reason rigorous, 
disallow possible sources of correction, like tradition, common sense, the consensus gentium, what people have always believed, the everyday human ability to recognize patterns that's normally called common sense. All those things are sources of prejudice that can't be objectively demonstrated, so they have to be excluded from public discussion. Also, those understandings of, of, of knowledge, of what life is about, of uh, what society is about, ground the claim of our elites to rule, and also the claim that a society is infinitely superior to any previous society, so whatever problems there are, uh, you've still got it really good. So nobody who matters is going to want to change them. So the predictable result of all these tendencies and the difficulty of changing them is a radically cosmopolitan and therefore deeply fragmented society that lacks common faith and loyalties. And that's a lack that will eventually destroy the mutual trust needed for public discussion and rationality. So it's not going to be run sensibly at all, even to the extent it is now. Under such circumstances, both the technological project and free cooperative public life become impossible. People aren't able to talk reasonably with each other. And the basis of rule is likely to be some combination of cronyism, dynasticism, you know, Clintons versus Bushes, <laughs> deceit, bribery, and force. With an ideology nobody believes, badly disguising what's going on. So what we'll have is something like the period of stagnation in the Soviet Union, followed eventually by transformation to something quite different that takes better account of considerations the current system ignores. So the question for us here today is how to promote developments that favor the transformation that make things less narrow, and also head off a post-Soviet-style collapse into ethnic hatred and mafia rule. I've presented a gloomy account that tends to suggest that the present order will destroy itself by insisting more and more single-mindedly on its own principles, and then it has to collapse before anything better can come along. Now that's an account, it's easy and clear sort of account to present, it's dramatic. And events may actually turn out that way. They may get bad without limit, and then there'll be some horrible collapse, and only then will something gradually come out of the ashes. But you just can't know in advance what will happen. A technocratic society like ours wouldn't work if we're technological through and through, since some degree of common sense is always necessary and it's always present. So natural human ways of thinking, in spite of all the things that we're required to say publicly, are still with us. So it's possible that people will grow tired of all the silliness and return to sanity without some extreme crisis. It can't be predicted. The repeated failure of predictions that, that will happen, and the intellectual and institutional causes of the persistence of current tendencies beyond all reason, don't prove a turnaround will never come. So our response has to be on multiple levels and include attempts to make improvements, moderate evils, and encourage new growth. And some of the other speakers may have uh, useful suggestions 
on that score, things that we can actually do that are concrete here and now that don't wait for the world to come to an end. What, what I'd like to emphasize, though, is that repeated failures show we need a deeper and more realistic understanding of the problems we face. Conditions are bad, it may be quite a while before things get better or even stop getting worse. And what we do and say must be guided by that recognition. Experience shows it does little good to push specific causes when the basis of public life is so radically defective. Few public figures understand the reasons beyond our position, such as natural law morality, so they think they're stupid or evil. What we need above all, then, is a radical transformation of the outlook guiding discussion and a radical broadening of the range of considerations thought relevant. That's a difficult task for reasons I've already stated, but it's necessary, absolutely necessary. For that reason, we need to emphasize the most basic points in our own thinking and, our, and in our public activities. Equal preference satisfaction is not the supreme principle of morality and public order. In fact, that view is our basic problem. It follows that spinning our message to fit the understandings that guide public life that follow from that view is going to lose us every battle and certainly the war. A turn to better things is going to require putting truth ahead of desire and technique and spin and presenting it insistently at every opportunity. To that end, we have to find once again our own way of speaking, make arguments that go beyond the principles of freedom, equality, and tolerance that our opponents propose and find useful, and bring human nature and substantive public good back into the public discussion. We can't just talk about liberty, we have to talk about the good life. That has to become the focus. And we need to emphasize a focus of truth and loyalty above society and beyond practical considerations. In other words, we need God. Of course, we also need more than principles. We can't fight something with nothing. So we also need to present an actual way of life better than the one around us. If we tell people there's something amiss, we have to show them something better. Also, lack of continuity has been a problem of movements of resistance to the modern liberal world. Resisting something so big and successful requires continuity of effort and discussion, and oppositional movements have been sporadic and disconnected. Everybody keeps reinventing how to do it. Now, progressives don't have that problem. They dominate public institutions, and they represent the interests of those who run them. And that gives them a certain cohesion and staying power. Our efforts also have to have the solidity that comes from a connection to something definite and enduring and concrete. For that reason, our best hope lies in emphasizing connections to concrete local communities, like church communities. To stand fast when times are difficult, those communities are going to need a definite system of belief and standards of behavior, along with an ultimate principle of authority so disputes can be resolved and standards enforced. So we need both local religious communities and we lead the church as a whole. Now that causes issues because in recent decades, 
the church leadership, a great, uh, much of it, you know, the, the bulk by weight, if not by, uh, you know, inspiration, has emphasized common ground with the secular world that, that rejects traditional and transcendent authorities. That result has not worked. The church is assimilated to the world rather than the reverse. And it's going to be hard to make a lot of progress until it changes. In a hierarchical church, there's a limit to what laymen can do to make changes. And it takes a while in any event for large institutions to learn from experience. Even so, the logic of the situation and the logic of experience and the natural tendency of institutions that are well-founded, like the church, to revert to type, to become once again what they have always been, eventually make such a change likely. And even people without authority can prepare the way for them. We can do so, for example, by developing our thoughts at conferences like this and by returning to type in our own lives as Christians. You know, nothing's ever going to get better unless we live better, unless our churches uh, work better as churches, unless the church as a whole becomes more itself. So to fight the war, we also need soldiers. As I've mentioned, opponents of the technological liberal society are usually traditionally minded conservatives. Today, conservatism is somewhat paradoxical. It makes sense, not in the sense of attachment to actually existing conditions, which is sort of what it normally means, but in the sense of valuing history, human nature, a studied orientation towards something transcending economic utility, like God, and patterns and attachments, like family and particular culture, that are central to normal social functioning. Helping reestablish a connection to such things, when that connection has been radically weakened, is going to require new forms of thought and action. You know, you can't just keep on doing what's been done because, uh, you know, we've seen what the result has been. And that's a problem, because the capture of institutions by the forces of liberal modernity has made our soldiers mostly populist and alienated them often from organized thought. You know, they don't trust uh, intellectuals, they don't trust theologians, they don't trust philosophers, and there's a lot, often there's a very good reason for that. That's true even in, of Catholics, who in theory accept hierarchy and intellectual authority because the attitude of church leaders has made resistance to the modern liberal world within Catholicism often anti-institutional. You're going against what's coming down. So that situation must change as well, and presumably it will, if the leadership of the church once again picks up the torch of resistant, resistance so that authority and organized thought once again guns align with a more adequate understanding of reality than the one that's been dominant. Finally, in addition to God, the church, our own way of thinking, speak, our own way of thinking, speaking, and living, and coherent communities to embody and carry forward those things, we need an ultimate goal to provide a focus for effort. 
Without that kind of goal, we're likely to react to particular events in a way that fails to deal with the situations as a whole, and in the end, uh, subordinates itself to the, that doesn't resist uh, general trends effectively. Now, since truth is to be the guide, the best hope for the future would seem to be an orientation toward a renewed Christendom. You know, maybe in the form of a society which Christianity has a status similar to that of liberal human rights today. So instead of the, uh, you know, the human rights, uh, human rights treating being the ultimate thing that people point to as an inspiration for how everybody should act, uh, you'd have papal encyclicals. You know, serve the same social function. You know, that wouldn't be a theocracy. Uh, you know, it'd just be a, a society that's differently oriented and focused. Now, Christendom may seem an unrealistic goal, but the current situation will not last forever. There is no rule for what comes next. You know, the worse the situation is, the more open-ended the future is. And the outlook of way of life that best fit human needs and aspirations is going to have an advantage in a time of increasingly radical disorder. Christians believe Christianity has that advantage. And if they're right, they have ground for good hope because truth itself will be fighting for them. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.